My name is Lisa Marie and I would like to welcome you to the first sessional meeting in Cape Town hosted by the Damages Committee. The Damages Committee was only established around four months ago and is chaired by Megan Butler. The committee consists of several subcommittees, um, one of them being the CPD Events and Awareness Committee. They will be responsible for arranging events like today and hopefully many more in the future. And they will also focus on creating awareness of the work of actuaries being done among stakeholders. There will also be a research subcommittee. There is a legal updates committee, subcommittee. They look at regulation, case law, judgments that affect the work of the actuary in the damages space. And finally, very importantly, the guidance subcommittee. And their first task at hand is to set up actuarial guidance notes for the damages space. In today's session, we're debating the role of the actuary in an ever-changing and sometimes lacking regulatory environment. First up will be Tommy DeBell. He's a director of the newly formed Argen Actuarial Solutions. Tommy's worked in pensions and in life in South Africa, the UK, and in Africa. He's evaluated in many pension funds and also acts as an expert witness in pension matters and damages claims. He's a chair of the Retirement Matter Committee and also a member of the Damages Committee. On the other hand, we will have Francois Hichu. Francois is the co-founder and owner of True South Actuaries and Consultants. Not an unfamiliar name if you work in the damages space. Not only is he a statutory actuary to the Road Accident Fund, but also to a number of long and short-term insurers, as well as the Compensation Fund. He's also a hopefully proud member of the Damages Committee. My suggestion for this afternoon is that Francois and Tommy um, speak and conclude their arguments, and thereafter we can ask them questions that we like. Over to Tommy. Thanks, Lesuri, and uh, yeah, the, it's good to be here. Um, I realised when I started uh, the or did, we did the presentation on, on Monday in Johannesburg that I've got the boring bit. You know, we've got we, we're in a fairly new space in the actuarial profession or in the formal structures of the actuarial profession in, in damages. But um, uh, I've, and I'm, I'll be covering pensions and, uh, and the road accident fund type individual um, uh, benefit claims. And then uh, Francois will be taking you over into some more exotic and interesting, interesting things of which I learned a lot uh, on Monday. So I, I think you can look forward to that. Um, we'll try and keep it fairly short um, and, and finish within, within the hour, allowing some time for questions. Um, but, but if you've got questions in between, I think it'd be good to keep it informal so you can, you're welcome to, to interrupt and ask us questions. Um, you also, I think I see some of the canny actuaries because you will be able to claim this as dual points, one hour for professionalism and another hour for damages or maybe some pensions and life in there as well. So well done, you, you're well set <laughs> to get ahead. Um, but as I said, I'll be looking after the, the pension side first and then going into damages, contrasting the two. And then Francois will, in his presentation, touch a bit more about what you do, uh, we'll talk about, about the professional code. Um, and uh, in the damages space, I realized, uh, well, there, there's such a lot to learn. Um, I spoke to Johan Potgitter on Monday and uh, learned a few new things as well. So, and I think an important thing there, which I forgot to mention in Johannesburg, but I think one of the important things to do when you are acting in a space where there's not much um, formal knowledge available um, is to consult your peers and, and speak to colleagues. And I think that's a, one of the nice things in a small profession like ours, you know most of the people and they're normally willing to help. So um, 
I mentioned I'll cover the topics uh, that I've got or that pension damages one through what's the, what are the formal regulation, then what's the professional guidance support, um, what's the theoretical basis, and then the gaps and challenges and looking into the solutions. Starting with pensions, and I'll go briefly about this because there's not such a, such a lot in that, but I think as a, the, the, um, the committee asked us to do is to contrast it a bit against the more formal space. So the pensions are basically background to say, well, what is a better regulated and, and a more formally structured um, actuarial workspace look like? So in pensions, practice area well-defined. Uh, we've got the Pension Funds Act, and it had a few changes. Uh, we went through that uncertainty when the surplus legislation came in 2000-2001 um, where we had to decide how we're going to do things but at least the, the act was, was fairly clear. Um, there's lots of regulation about it, regulations and they, these are updated as the regulator sees that there are problems. Um, and then the FSB, FSB actively monitors um, and supports that uh, it, its guidance from, a, from a, almost a legal, legal state. So we get PF circulars, information circulars, interpretation notes, board notices, and PF directives. Many more, and it seems like these are increasing. But I think that's the nice thing about a regulator that, that, that brings clarity to the act and the regulations. Um, so if there's not much uncertainty about what you should do. Okay, what does the actual society or the professional society do to support actuaries? Um, again, well-structured and defined. We've got a dedicated practice area committee in the RMC. Um, there we look at, at uh, the formal guidance, uh, standards of actual practice and actual practice notes. Um, these are updated and reviewed in line with the legislation, um, also providing CPD opportunities. And on the interaction side, many practitioners in the space, you know, you've, you've often got many actuaries within, your own, within the company that you can interact with and ask questions in internal um, information sessions and training sessions and if not um, informal ones. I belong to a lunch group and during the time of the, the, the pensions uh, surplus legislation we met regularly for uh, two, an hour or two hours before the, the lunch um, to discuss how we should deal with, with matters where there weren't clarity. So there's the informal structure is also there to, to, to try and help us get to the best um, practice. The international organizations also has well-structured pensions um, um, uh, structures where we tap into. Okay, what's the theoretical basis? And I think, any, as any, thinking back to your students' days, there's more than enough <laughs> in theory. Often we think there's much too much. So, but there's a lot of theory about it, um, both in your, the training materials and ongoing research through universities. Um, we see articles in, the, in many different publications uh, with which we can access easily. Um, the, research, the research are disseminated quite well through conventions, papers that are published, um, sessional meetings like this. You know, so there's a lot that's happening and that fairly efficiently distributed through the profession. So. In, in, in practice, everything well set up in the pension side. Where there are gaps and challenges, I mentioned the surplus legislation. Um, we again potentially going into a, a period of change where the, um, the new uh, um, almost social security aspects would, would start interacting with the pensions side of things. So, so there would potentially be uncertainty again, but within the structures that I've mentioned, you know, normally these uncertainty are fairly well 
um, uh, dealt with. Um, a few examples, uh, defined benefit to defined contribution. I think at that time, the actual society um, did, did its bit. It's interesting to look at the UK actual profession now and how much discussion is going on about DC and defined ambition and how do you do deal with the different aspects of DC as they start the massive conversion into almost a fully DC environment. In South Africa, umbrella funds, I think, provides a few challenges. We, we may still need to debate how do we deal with this, and what's our best practice from actuaries in terms of looking at umbrella funds. And I think the recent thing is personal pensions or pensions drawing down from um, uh, pension funds itself. You know, I've, I've got a few funds where the trustees are looking at having almost uh, capital-linked annuities, uh, drawdown annuities from the pension fund. And often there's implied guarantees that, that the fund may not realize. So there's something that we'll keep an eye on. Okay, now let's look at the well, solutions then. I mentioned, I think, fairly well in place um, through this, the professional structures and the regulation. Going into damages, uh, and yeah, I'm mostly looking at road accident fund work. We, we I've got most experience. Francois will deal more with the wider fields aspects of, of uncertainty in, in regulation and practice. But I'll be looking at road accident fund work and to some extent medical negligence claims. And again, these are uncertain, but certain, but after I've heard Francois talk on Monday, you know, much less uncertainty, I think, even there than, than in some of the wider fields areas. Um, but looking at road accident and, and uh, medical negligence work, practice area largely undefined. No formal uh, regulation. Um, we've got the Act, but the Act doesn't even really mention actuaries. Um, it mentions a claim must be quantified, and actuaries are doing this work in, in, uh, uh, as, as they are skilled to do so. But there's no strong regulation defining what the actuaries should do um, in detail. And then the, 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 the thing that gives a solution, but I think a bit of a problem as well, is past um, case law, you know, court judgments that came out that defined certain things. And I think that's one of the things that we as, a, as the practice area committee will have to deal with, because it may be that these uh, court judgments may not be best actuarial practice, but in, in law, that is what stands and what should be, what should be, should be followed. So, so um, the, the fact that it's undefined or started out like that leads to a few, a few problems. Um, and for non-RAF work, Francois will cover that, but there's very little in place. Um, the main uh, regulation or, that, or the guidance that we get uh, from the actual society or from a professional uh, uh, nature is the actual society's code of conduct, which says, you know, you shouldn't do work that you're not qualified to do. If you um, are going to that sort of work, then you meet, need to make sure that you get the get knowledge and also talk to your peers and, and get information from them as to how, you think, how this should be done. Um, so the code of conduct basically says we must act professionally. As actuaries, we seem to to possess this uh, knowledge that's uh, sometimes, we, I think we, um, enhance the image of this mystical thing that actually looks into his crystal ball and gives you the answer. <laughs> but um, in, in practice, we shouldn't abuse that, and, and we should make sure that what we give is, is, um, is, is uh, suits the suits the ball. Um, in a professional matter, you know, there was a damages 
committee. It wasn't a formal practice area committee, but there was a group of actuaries that started talking about legislation and damages uh, to some extent about two years ago. Um, but it's only in this year that we started the full, that we've got a full practice area committee that will be dealing with dam damages work. Um, Lisa Marie mentioned the four um, subcommittees that we've got within the committee. Um, and then we'll be looking at providing CPD opportunities um, and also um, uh, formal guidance uh, if necessary. Um, I'll, I'll mention that a bit later under solutions. Um, I mentioned the good interaction between pensions actuaries and that's mostly done in-house with training sessions and things like that. In the damages space, there's not much of that um, taking place. Before last year, most um, actuaries dealing with, say, road accident fat matters were small one-man or two-man operations. Uh, we, and often, you know, your, the guys that you may want to ask for uh, advice is your competition. So you, the, I think people may have, uh, uh, well, I think people build up their base of knowledge over time. But, but I've been very fortunate in, in having good friends or colleagues that I could and did um, uh, contact frequently as to, and to ask how to deal with different, different things. And I can encourage you to do so if you're in this field or any other one. I think we, we try and we must and we do protect the image of the actuary in not keeping important knowledge to ourselves and so you can find it out for yourself. I think we must project at court or to our clients, you know, the actuarial profession knows what it's doing. Um, and you can't say, well, that actually is just bad, he did it wrong, you know. <laughs> Obviously, I think you, you know that from your professionalism course. Um, but, but the interaction is limited in the, in the space, and I can encourage you to use it more. You know, I've been finding it extremely helpful over time. And no international body, uh, we're involved in a group of actuaries in Europe, and it's interesting at our meeting uh, earlier this year, first meeting of the year, with the partner in Spain said that they also starting to go into this uh, road accident or individual damages type claims um, and on asking what sort of guidance they've got, same as here, basically nothing as your profession has got no specifics um, as to, to guide actuaries. Theoretical base, again, very limited. Robert Koch has been leading the way um, in, in his, I think he's got two papers that's very helpful. Um, and, and gives a good theoretical base, I think, uh, for a, a road accident fund to work at least. Um, and he's also published newspapers that I think is very helpful, and he's got the quantum yearbook that's also got some standards. And in the absence of anything else, that has been the de facto standard for, for damages work. Um, in certain cases, it has been overturned, uh, for example, mortality. In his book, he publishes his rate of mortality basis, which has been broadly accepted by actuaries because it is a standard base. It's a blend of the 84 tables um, to try and get to something that's got some sort of an income sort of spread. But in theory, there's not really much in it. You know, it's a, it's, I think it's fairly good, but it's in court, in the silk judgment, I think, um, when the actuaries had to say what's the theoretical basis for these specific tables, they had to say, well, it's a broad approach. And in that case, the, the court forced um, the actuaries to use the white male table, which was applicable to the, to the life under, under investigation. So that's one of the things that I said is something that, that the case law may inhibit us from dealing, dealing with the, or giving the right answer. Um, but it's also one of the things that the practice area committee will be dealing with uh, to look at what are proper mortality tables that have got a, a, a solid base in, in, in theory. 
Okay, looking at the gaps, uh, um, the Amendment Act, which came in 2009 about or dealing with accidents after August 2008, made a big impact in this in this area because it brought in the earnings cap, as you would probably know, um, and the way that the Act is written doesn't deal with this very clearly. Um, there's a large number of uncertainties. Uh, I'll, I'll mention that briefly and then I'll come back to the second point there. But um, the cap is that at the accident date or is the cap as at the calculation date? Um, the Act doesn't say clearly what, what should happen there. There's been a judgment, Janowski, that says it should be at the calculation date. So you should inflate the cap up to the calculation date and then use it. Um, then is the cap inflating or not? And if it is inflating, um, does it inflate at the rate of inflation, at the rate of salary earnings? I think some of our methodologies effectively inflates that cap at the discount rate, um, the, the investment return rate. Um, the rate of salary increases, um, if you use promotional increases, thinking from a pensions point of view, you've got an inflation, price inflation base, then you can add on top of that promotional increases, normally higher at the young ages and lower as you go older. Um, but something on top of inflation, price inflation. Um, in this type of work, we normally use a 2.5% net discount rate above earnings. So what happens if your expert um, industrial psychologist gives you specific promotional scales? You know, should you incorporate that? Is it above price inflation or is that sort of just blended in with your 2.5% discount? Uh, something that I myself has got some views on, but I think there's an uncertainty there. And the contingencies, um, there's been some talk that where we apply contingencies, which, which is if we calculate a loss, uh, we apply a contingency saying um, the actuary looks, looked in his crystal ball and say this is the amount of income that a person may have lost out on due to his being in an accident. Um, but then the court normally applies a contingency to say um, okay, this is all well and good, but there's a chance that he would still be able to work um, and things might look better than what you projected, so let's apply a contingency thereby reducing the loss. Um, in terms of the cap, there's been some thought to say you must first apply the cap and then once the loss has been capped, then reduce it for contingencies. Another school says first reduce the contingencies, uh, the loss by the contingencies, then you apply the cap. Um, differences of view there. And lastly, I mentioned the mortality to use. Um, the Sweetman judgment came out earlier this year, and in my mind it, it brought a lot of clarity as to how we should do things. In, in one point it didn't, uh, I think, really provide clarity in terms of the, the is the cap at the accident date or the, the calculation date, but, but in all other aspects I think it brought a lot of, uh, would reduce a lot of the uncertainties that I've mentioned below. The problem is with the road accident fund is in the process of appealing that judgment. And in the calculation of our claims, they want uh, the road accident fund actuaries to ignore the Sweatman judgment um, in their calculations, which leads the actuary to a professional dilemma. You know, what do you do? You know, the client tells you, listen, ignore the, the law as it stands at the moment and do what I tell you to do. Or do you say, well, sorry, Mr. Client, um, I, I have to do what I, uh, what I think is the professionally correct way to do it? Um, I've been grappling with this, <laughs> and initially I followed the, the, the professional actuary role to say, listen, 
if I go to court, this is what I have to say, and I'll have to justify my methodology. It's in line with Sweatman, it was beforehand, and after the judgment, even stronger so, because that is the, the law as it stands. Um, and we did that for many months until the funds started being very adamant in saying we want this loss calculated on two bases. And what they then offer the client is a loss, um, well, as I said, the, 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 the sweatman judgment reduced the losses in general, um, uh, sorry, increased the losses. Um, and so the fund wanted to settle at the lower amount, uh, anticipating that the sweatman judgment would be overturned on appeal, which I think is a fair um, thing to do. Legally may not be correct, but if they do offer settlement on the reduced amount, giving or giving the obligation or the intent that they will increase the, the, the settlement amount once they were unsuccessful in the appeal, then there is some fairness involved. Otherwise, you can say, you know, in this period, why should you overpay if that appeal is going to be successful? So what we do currently is we do follow the, 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 the road accident fund methodology, but stating clearly that we were instructed to do so. And if I go to court, Justifying my, my methodology, I just say, well, sorry, this is not what I would have done normally, um, and I would have done used this method. So they know that if I go to court, they'll be they'll be in a bind. But I think the the port settlement is a, is a is some sort of middle way that I can I can understand. Um, I mentioned that uh, we also I think one of the things that we struggle with is uh, the client may ask for joint minutes between actuaries. Now that's normal practice between industrial psychologists or doctors, they've got a number of aspects that they agree on and a few aspects that they disagree on. Um, so normally for them it's, it's, it's standard and efficient to, to give a joint um, uh, minute, uh, which would then clarify the, the few areas of dispute. Um, for actuaries, we found, we found in a number of cases, and I think some of you can add your, your comments there, that you know, it's not that efficient to do a, a joint minute between actuaries. There's too many things that, that differ. You know, we can say we agree on the mortality rate to use and the, um, say, the salary or the, the, the parameters are fairly easy. They, they, they're there. Um, but the methodology is much more difficult to, to explain in a, in a joint minute. So joint minutes is something that the committee will be looking at as to how we deal with that and requests for joint minutes. Um, in this whole process of uncertainty, I think it's important that actuaries project a professional role um, throughout. And there is a danger in, when I mentioned these tons of differences, that actuaries can start blaming and say, no, but that guy doesn't know what he's doing. You know, uh, So we must guard against that. Um, and yeah, uh, I mentioned the non-RAF work is even less guidance and case law in it than the road accident fund work. So medical negligence claims are um, even, even a bit more out there where you have to rely on the professional code. Um, now we come to solutions and I'll briefly go through these. Um, the professional body will be doing research through the practice area committee. So in the damages committee we've got a number of um, topics that we've identified, I'll list them just now, and we'll be looking through them and putting this out to the actuaries for discussion. And if we're successful there, um, we will get a much closer alignment between actuaries. Um, 
I mentioned the importance of discussing um, uh, the, your methodology with other actuaries, and that's again, I think, something that I've enjoyed the interaction with your opponents in, in work like this, because it's, it's nice to talk to, to your uh, fellow actuary and say, listen, now, what did you do? We can much more easily get to the point of the difference, and often it, um, our calculations are very much the same. You know, so uh, in most cases, it's the salaries that are different, or the you were instructed to use a different sort of salary progression. Um, so the parameters are fairly easy to find, but in terms of the methodology with the capping, it has become more challenging. But still, I find it um, it's always enjoyable to discuss these things with your fellow actuaries and, and, and uh, get to get to an answer that we can explain to the clients where, the, where our differences lie. Um, as I said, if we can get to formal guidance, that would be a first prize, but I anticipate that we probably have a good discussion amongst actuaries on a number of different topics and then agree to disagree, but at least know where we disagree and why we do so. And over time, I hope we, we can even move even closer together. We'll, we'll be having these sessions uh, more and more, and I think a lot you can look forward to a lot in next year as we discuss these different topics that we are currently uh, researching. And uh, one thing that I think can help a lot is just defining the terminology. You know, these differences of opinion that I mentioned, or the uncertain aspects. You know, if we can clearly state where we differ, you know, if our, we can our terminology is better, I think we'll get to the points of difference much quicker. This is the list of research topics that, I've, um, that we're working on. Remarriage contingencies, there is some, some um, remarriage contingencies in, in uh, uh, Robert Koch's uh, Quantum of uh, uh, Yearbook, um, but there has been, a, I think, more research done outside so we can potentially look at updating those. Um, I mentioned that it's a discount rate versus salary inflation. Um, another thing that we're looking at is how do you treat the pension benefit? You know, one fund may have a defined benefit benefit for, say, the husband, and there's a defined contribution fund involved with the wife. You know, how do you merge these two? How do you deal with defined benefit work? Uh, for instance, um, looking at the capping. We've got a cap of, say, 200,000. Um, if there's a lump sum benefit paid through pension, is that capped in that year of receipt? Or should you maybe assume, okay, well, the person, if he's savvy, he, wouldn't have, he would not take a lump sum. He'd spread it over time and have an increased pension, so the cap won't bite. So that's one way that I would argue, argue it to be done. But then you get the gratuity. You know, you haven't got the option to spread it. So should you cap that lump sum or shouldn't you? Um, but we look at the pension aspects of it. Um, we look at the medical negligence discount rate. Um, is it 2% above inflation? Is it 3% above price inflation? Is it equal to inflation over the long term? You know, many people have got different opinions, even economists. Um, so we'll see how we deal with that. Um, and then impaired mortality and AIDS mortality is the, the last one that, that we were looking at. Um, there's a lot of research on that. As actuaries, we are experts on that, so we should be able to I think come to a fairly good standard that we can use that's acceptable throughout the profession. And my last slide is to say um, the client has a large vested stake in the results. Um, road accident funds claim obvious. The client, the, the claimant wants a large claim to get more money. The fund wants to reduce it um, and not overpay. Um, and, and that impacts on the pressure that they put on the actuary to accept a basis that's acceptable to them. Um, there the actuary should stand firm and say this is the basis that is professionally um, correct and that's where guidance I think can help actuaries tremendously. 
Um, in pensions, we've got the same sort of thing where you do an uh, accounting valuation for business on their pension fund. You know, a certain set of assumptions can lead to vastly higher numbers and costs and reduction in profits to a company than another one. And there, the guidance by the accounting profession has, has helped a lot to reduce those um, pressures on the actuary. Um, but we, the support is, um, uh, is, is very useful. And I think, uh, just to finish all of that, you know, the professional code is the guiding light that should guide all your decisions and, and, and thoughts and, in, in the, this work where there's uncertainty around. Thank you, I'll hand over to Francois. I'm going to start so long. So there, there are basically um, two distinct topics for today. The one was really how an actuary would deal, um, or how an actuary copes within or adapts in a, in, in a world where there's sort of continuous change. So that's a very sort of general um, topic. Um, the, the, the second one is really how one deals, how one actually should deal within an environment where there's a lack of any regulatory framework. Slightly different sort of topics really. Um, they are sort of in terms of how you think about them and, and, and what's available out there and how one actually should react is actually very different. So I'm going to do the one, I'm going to treat them sort of as two separate topics. The context within which I'll be addressing those issues would be within the wider fields um, um, industry, if you want, or actuarial sort of practice area. Um, specifically, work that, that, that I'm involved in through my involvement with True South. Um, as was mentioned, we the statutory actuaries of the Road Accident Fund. Um, the Road Accident Fund is in the process of being replaced by the Road Accident Benefit Scheme, which is very different to the Road Accident Fund, and we do a lot of work um, for them sort of in preparation of, of that legislation coming into play. Um, motor vehicle maintenance and warranty schemes, um, sort of calculations, liability calculations that need to be performed there. Um, absolutely no guidance really in terms of how one should approach those valuations. Um, and in the compensation fund, some guidance, but actually nothing really. Um, we have to do, actually need to do according to law, um, a, a sort of evaluation um, on a regular basis of the liabilities of the fund. But there's no real guidance in terms of what one should be doing there. And we'll be looking at a few examples of, of, of uncertainties in how and actually should approach these, these, these um, um, puzzles that are presented um, and what sort of the, the, the tools are or the sort of the mechanisms are that one could um, employ in, in, in approaching those, those, those uncertainties. So, First of all, just sort of to get you a bit of a background on the road accident fund, um, balance sheets wise, no assets really. Um, so it's sort of managed on a pay-as-you-go basis. So if there are assets, it's really because not enough was paid in the previous year. So whatever is available in terms of what comes in gets paid in a year, unless there's inefficiencies really. Um, to which extent then there could be some assets building up on the balance sheet but then a new CEO would come in and there would sort of be a new factory set up and they'll start paying quicker and then we sort of, so over time we sort of manage the assets to be very roughly close, almost like one times the operational expenses which is about 1.5 billion in a year. Liabilities, it's not zero, it's really 100 billion, quite a lot. Um, so that was as of the 31st of, of March 2014. In terms of the income statement, what happens every year, we get like fuel levies every year, I think it's about a rand now per litre of fuel um, that you put into your car goes to the road accident fund. 
Um, that amounts to about 20 billion per annum in terms of fuel levies. Most of that is then applied towards claims, about 1.5 billion admin expenses, but the rest of it all goes towards claims. And those claims would be legal, medical, general damages, loss of support, loss of income, funeral type claims. Um, the loss of income, loss of support claims, those are the ones that Tommy sort of basically referred to when he was talking about damages claims and how that gets calculated. That's where actuaries get involved um, to, to get the quantum of how much um, should be paid by the road accident fund. In terms of actuarial services, the road accident fund uses actuary, actuaries um, to a huge degree they, um, for the liability valuation, obviously, to determine the 100 billion. Um, reinsurance decisions, we're involved in, a, in, a, in an exercise there currently to optimize their reinsurance program. Balance sheet projections, that's basically used when you do your fuel levy calculations. The next one there, um, every year we sit with Treasury and we sort of project the balance sheets going forward and say um, how much should the fuel levy be to get rid of that 100 billion liability in the next one year, two years, three years, four years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, 50 years. Um, financial projections is an knowledge transfer. They're currently actually stocking up on an actuarial um, um, practice or actuarial sort of um, department within the road accident fund. I think they're currently four plus one, like five, uh, one actually and four actuarial students. Um, and we're sort of um, involved in, in, in knowledge transfer to, to those individuals. On the, the road accident fund benefit scheme, as I say, this is sort of in currently in the process of, of, of being investigated or sort of being put up. There's a, there's a bill that has been published and actuarial society has given input to that as well. Um, it replaces the RAF within the next five years or so. Um, no general damages claims, much wider reach. Currently on the road accident fund, you have to have earned something to at least be able to claim for loss of income. On the road accident, on, on, on the RABS, you need not be able to show that. There will be a minimum sort of um, salary level, so if you're unemployed and you are in an accident, you can actually claim loss of income as well. Um, there is also a strong focus on rehabilitation. Um, it's going to be a very much sort of a medically driven sort of, um, lots of it's almost going to be like a, a medical scheme, sort of a big portion of, of, of the road accident um, benefit scheme. Um, on the asset side, the intention for it is to be fully funded. It currently says that in so many words in the bill. Um, so how that is going to come about when one transitions from the road accident funding to the into RAVs is a bit of an issue, um, because currently the RAF is, is on a pay-as-you-go basis, and that 100 billion still needs to be paid sort of in terms of accidents that happen before a certain date. If you want this to be fully funded, we will have a period where the current generation will actually be paying for, um, for, for way more than just their own, their own accidents. On the liability side, um, there's going to be quicker settlement, so the liabilities will probably be lower than the RAF. There's not going to be this big um, proof um, that you, it's, it's not the no-fault fault system. Currently, within the road accident fund, one has to be able to prove that you um, were actually, somebody else was negligent and you weren't able to get a, um, a claim cut, it's gonna, that, that's all going to disappear from the road exit from RAPS. The thinking really I think behind all of that is that such a big portion of this 20 billion that the road accident fund gets every year gets directed towards attorneys in terms of trying to establish whose fault this was and what the sort of apportionment of fault was. Um, and that introduces quite a lot of court actions and all that and, and sort of a big, big, big portion of the total 20 billion actually ends up in the, in the, in the bank accounts of the attorney firms. And this tries to sort of um, get rid of all of that, the RAP system. So there's not going to be um, a lot of lawyers involved. That's the, the anticipation. However, there's going to be a lot of medical professions involved, professionals involved, medical service providers. So there's going to be a question again, you know, are we just shifting this to another profession that's sort of really good at sometimes sort of inflating their bills? Um, but we'll have to wait and see. 
um, what happens there. On the um, actuarial services side, it's not operational currently, no, um, but um, a, a medic, a sort of an actuarial firm has been involved in setting the medical tariff structure, one of the big actuarial firms. Uh, we're involved in helping with um, costing the benefits, how much it's going to cost. Uh, the benefit design, which is currently quite rudimentary, is very, um, very broad brush. So we're looking at that. Um, there are certain earnings definitions and limits that they want to introduce in their benefits, which we're helping them with. And there's got to be a funding model to, which is going to determine that we've been, been commissioned to do a funding model because you know, it's all very well to say that this is going to be a fully funded scheme, but how much should the fuel levy then really be? And for over what period should we be paying two rand, three rand, four rand per litre of fuel to be able to, to, to make sure that this is a fully funded scheme? And is that there going to be appetite for that? Or is Treasury going to get some money somewhere to, to assist? Um, so all of that's going to come out in, this, in, this, in the results of this funding model. Uh, compensation fund, similar sort of situation, um, except that, that it, they're fully funded and they're actually quite well funded at this stage. Eight, 44 billion of assets, 18 billion of liabilities. Um, benefits, uh, well, the, on the income side of the income statement, about 8 billion of employer levies per year. In terms of benefits, we just don't know. I mean, currently the whole system is really in disarray. And there is a system, and it's somewhere there, but nobody really knows how to get hold of all that information. So it's extremely difficult to, at this stage, come up with a liability number. So take that 18 billion with a pinch of salt. Um, it is, um, they haven't had a set of, of, of accounts that, all the accounts in the last three, four, five years had been subject to quite a lot of serious disclaimers from, from the AGSA. So that's a bit of an um, issue there in coming up with actuarial advice to a, to, to a client like this where they don't really have data. They've got data, um, it's just not available really. Um, so we'll be talking about that a little bit later on as well. Actuarial services, they make use of actuarial services extensively. So in the motor vehicle warranty assistance plans, running out of time, I think I just want to quickly run it. So we do, um, some, we do a few of those. Um, for a number of, of, of vehicle brands in, in the South African industry. Um, it's really sort of, if you, for instance, a BMW, if you buy a new BMW, you get a five-year, 100,000-kilometer maintenance plan. Um, a part of the, a portion of, of, of the, the purchase price for that vehicle would go into a fund which really sort of should be covering all those expenses. And there needs to be a valuation every now and then to determine whether that fund um, is going to be sufficient for, for, for the future services and maintenance um, costs that are going to be incurred. Um, in terms of the size of this kind of business, it's, it's, it's absolutely huge. I mean, if you were to compare the reserves that are just on the clients that we service, which is a portion, which is just a fraction of the total market share, it's way more than any big insurance company out there, a uh, short-term insurance company, that is. I think it's a bit of a function of the fact that this is a, sort of a single premium coming in for a five-year period, so you do get a lot of, lot of inflow into that, that fund, but the risk is very similar to what you'll be facing under a short-term insurer, and there's absolutely no FSB intervention from whatsoever. Um, and if you were sort of looking at this as an industry, I mean, it would really sort of put, it dwarfs the total short-term insurance industry. And in a way, it's really sort of a bit of a concerning thing um, the fact that this, these, these um, sort of providers of vehicle sort of um, manufacturers are allowed to, 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 to operate within an environment um, where they can actually um, 
get by with, with, with much less capital than what a similar sort of um, short-term insurer would have to set up had they been writing similar sorts of business. Um, <clears throat> how does it actually adapt in this sort of ever-changing environment? Three examples of change that we've had to face. This is sort of a, an interesting graph which shows the number of claims being reported within the road accident fund over a period from, from 2000 up until 2014. The light shaded bit there at the end, 2014 bit would be the IBNR. So those claims hadn't been reported by that time, but that's our estimate of how many claims would be coming in. Um, and the darker bits, these sort of really dark bits, this is what's been settled. Um, this is what's reported but not yet settled, sort of like the blue, and this is in the IBNR. So Tommy was talking about the new amendment act that came in around about this time. Um, and that's probably the reason for that big spike. But if you start thinking about why that spike is there, it doesn't really make sense. Um, because we're talking about accident years at, year at the bottom. There shouldn't really have been more accidents um, in the period leading up to the new amendment act, but somehow there were. Um, so if you look at sort of the two normal periods, there's sort of almost like a normal period up until 2006, and then there's a normal period um, at 2010 onwards. And this is where the act was introduced, more or less here. And in the run-up to the new act being introduced, there was just a spike of claims um, that couldn't have been foreseen when we were in 2006 or even in 2008. Because remember, in 2008, uh, these claims typically take a very long time to get reported, um, up until three years. So at that point, what was reported, you could start seeing an uptick you know, in reported claims. But it was nowhere near the level there. You could see it was more than in the past. But was this really the result of just being claims reported earlier on? because people were worried about the new act coming in? Or was this really an indicative of more claims being reported? And if so, why? I mean, why would there have been more claims? I mean, there was absolutely no reason for that to think that. So the actuarial service providers at that time, they went us, it was sort of a different firm at that point. They came up with a number. And the road accident fund wasn't really very happy with that number. And they thought, no, this is very high. Let's get in another firm. They got in another firm to also do a calculation and the road accident fund said, yes, it's still a little bit high, you know, get, let's get another firm. <laughs> so there were actually three firms that did, this that did the calculation, and the last one that said, okay, we more or less like this number, um, which is a very low number. But then there was also the AGSA, and we were sort of um, assisting the AGSA with a, with a peer review at that point, and we had to make sense of these three valuations. At that point, it was just totally impossible to say what this liability should be. Because to, to be able to say you had to have insight into why the claims were going to, why the, why the, sort of the claims were being reported, <coughs> were they being reported quicker? In which instance you don't have to put up the liability because it's all being reported. You don't have to have a high IBNR. Was this all sort of indicative of more claims to come? Which in the end, now with hindsight, we saw it was. And um, then, the, then the liability would have been much higher. So in the end, there was a big um, a meeting. There were like all these actuaries were chased into a room. And Kasper Hagrief was there as well, because he was at that stage the, uh, on, the, on, the, on the board of the road accident fund. So I think there were about sort of eight or nine different actuaries in that room, all debating what this liability should be. And it was sort of extremely boring. And um, everybody sort of put their point forward, and everybody tried to be sort of very civil initially. Later, it got, it got later, and people had flights to catch, and they got less civil, or sort of a bit more sort of aggressive. And in the end, they sort of ended up with saying, oh, let's split the diffs, you know, let's get the average of all of this. Um, it's, a, it's, it's a bit, it wasn't really as, as bad as that. But um, it just does show that sort of, it's, it's, it's sometimes really difficult um, to, um, in an ever-changing world, um, come up with a set of uh, parameters or an assumption, a methodology or assumptions 
that um, would be able to rep be reproduced by a different actuary coming in with a similar mindset of getting to a best estimate number. Um, depending on how one views events, depending on why, why you think certain events did take place, you can get to vastly different kind of numbers. That's an example one. Example two, electrical cars are coming in. BMW is going to launch two new models within the near future. You look at sort of the, 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 the number of, of, of um, electrical cars being sold in the U.S. See, it's going to, it's, there's a dramatic increase. Um, it's still very low, but there's a huge increase in that. And, and it's very difficult to really price for these cars because we don't really know what the, um, the maintenance costs are going to be. Uh, we've got some sense um, in terms of what the maintenance costs are in the U.S. or in different sort of jurisdictions where, where the cars had been, you know, where the cars had been selling for a while. But um, costs vary very dramatically depending on, on, the, on the usage rate of a car. If a car gets driven sort of just like, um, let's say, 2,000 k's per month is more or less the average. You know, a car that drives at 1,000 k a month, the cost per kilometer is much, it's very different to a car that gets driven 40, 50,000 k's per, per year. Um, so in that regard, we don't have lots of information. It also is being made diffi difficult by the fact that there are no maintenance plans really elsewhere apart from South Africa. I didn't know that, but it's sort of a South African thing. Um, there are warranty plans out there um, uh, in the rest of the world, but a maintenance plan where everything is really covered for a period of five years or up to 100,000 is really sort of a very unique South African thing. Um, so that's a bit of a, an uncertainty um, heading our way. Quaid levies, we're sort of currently sort of restructuring the whole Quaid um, compensation fund levy structure. Currently there are 102 classes. You can get loadings, discounts, rebates. Um, that's all going to change from 2016-17 onwards where there's going to be five classes only, no rebates, no, no um, loadings, no um, um, uh, discounts. And the problem is really currently we're using the compensation fund classification. They've got their own classification. If you are a company, we would sort of ask you what it is that you do and you say, I'm a security firm. And we say, okay, oh, you're a very sort of, I mean, lots of people are going to get shot and all that, and we're very worried about that, and we're going to charge you 8% of your salary, salary bill. But they, next year, the same company sort of gets re-registered, and that sort of wisened up and said, no, but we really also do a little bit of admin. You know, so, okay, you're an admin company, you know, and then they like start paying 1%. So I think there's a bit of a, there's a, there's a misclassification currently within the base, it's, and it's been exacerbated apparently by people that were used to work for the compensation fund that knew how to get re-registered as a different kind of employer and go out and target certain employers and assist them in, in, in getting a new classification and get some form of kickback. Um, it's been, it's been rumoured uh, to have happened. So the, the problem here now is really sort of, it's like, are we going to drop all of that? We're going to move on to the sub-C classification. Um, but what sort of, how does one sort of determine these rates before you really know how people are going to be re-registered? Re um, is there going to be, uh, how, how wrong were we within the compensation fund in, in, in classifying certain, um, and, and the rates are going to be very different. It can range from something like a 0.2% to 8%. So if you've got it wrong, it can actually sort of affect the income that the compensation fund gets uh, to a huge degree. So those are a few examples. How does one adapt? Um, we've got sort of two people that, we, that, I, that I decided I'm going to use as a sort of a springboard for all of this. The one is, um, uh, I pronounced his name wrong. Yes, that's right. Descartes. Now this is the guy from I think that's why I am sort of fame. Um, he lived in 1596 until 1650, so it's quite a long time ago. And then there was somebody else as well, I'll, I'll put his quote up just now, and there was a, a George Eliot as well, 
And we can see she was actually um, a woman, but she wanted to be taken seriously um, for her writings, she said, and that's why she sort of went under, under a man's name. Um, but then when I sort of looked at these people, I sort of got the quotes, and then I started looking at them and sort of thinking that these would really be sort of big um, sort of um, uh, figures within, within the history. But I stumbled onto a few things that happened in their lives. Um, they got, I'm going to read this, it's from Wikipedia. It says, on the night of 10 to 11 November 1619, while stationed somewhere in Germany, Descartes shut himself in an oven. Um, probably a kachel oven or a masonry yeast. I don't really know why the, the make of the oven is really important. I think it was an oven. Um, and he did this to escape the cold. So while within, he had three visions. And he believed that a spirit revealed to him a new philosophy. Upon exiting, he had formulated analytical geometry and the idea of applying the mathematical method to philosophy. So um, that is the, um, Descartes' sort of claim to fame. Um, George... Georgie also didn't really sort of have a very, she married, ended up sort of living uh, with a married person called George Henry Lewis and he was, became a swindler and eventually he was convicted as a, as a, as a murderer and she lived with him for about 20 years. So with these two people sort of um, guiding us into the future in terms of um, their quotes um, of how one should adapt to change, let's hope the oven episode happened after this quote and the, the murderous sort of ten tendency sort of also after, but he said... Descartes said that in, it is a truth very certain that when it is not in our power to determine what is certainly true, we ought to follow what is most probable. So I think he was sort of, he paved the way for the actuarial profession in a way. But along came George and um, she said that yes, that's all fine, most probable, but ignorance gives one too large a range of probabilities. So I think that basically said, if you want to cope within a Within an ever-changing world, yes, I mean, actuaries are very well suited to do that because they know what to do with probabilities. They know how to, you know, you just go into probabilities. But it puts a tremendous responsibility on an actuary. Because, I mean, without, if, if you do that in ignorance, I mean, your range of probabilities is just so high. So there's a huge sort of um, uh, responsibility on an actuary to become an expert in his field. Um, if this is a wider field um, environment, then he has to become an expert within that field. And there are really a few ways of doing that. I mean, the one is to read and to study, and there's plenty of information um, that one can actually access in terms of um, getting to know what the future maintenance costs of, a, of, a, of an electrical car will be. It's on the internet. There are lots and lots of information on that. Um, there's lots of information in terms of how different kinds of engines um, sort of um, react to different kinds of um, batteries being sort of... Um, um, proposed as, 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 as sort of as, as the, the main component of the electrical car and depending on which one is going to be used it could have a huge effect on the on the cost of the car and it's we don't necessarily as actuaries um, have got an inclination necessarily towards opening a car's boot and sort of looking at the engine but we've got a responsibility to know what the impact will be in terms of the costs if that is our responsibility to determine what the what the what the likely cost is going to be um, so that's important, I think, to ask and discuss and listen is extremely important. There's so much information out there that we sometimes just don't ask for. You know, I mean, I'm talking about uh, stupid, you know, like sort of management information, like annual financial statements, like strategy plans, like sort of um, business plans, like projections. that are all out there within the company's um, archives that one just needs to get hold of. And I think it's very important to, in those interactions, in sort of trying to get as much information as you possibly can, to go there with, a, with the intent of learning, and not so much with the intent of trying to get there and being 
smart. I think um, is actually should, should, should acknowledge the fact that we don't know everything, that we can be an extremely important piece of the, the solution, but we can't be a solution on our own. Um, we have to get all the information that we possibly can, and we've got to mine all available data. Um, lots to be said about that, but I'm going to skip over that. And then, <clears throat> sort of, um, we've got to explain this responsibly um, in the end. Let's say we have got all that information, we've got a fairly good sense of where this is heading, we still need to be able to explain very well to the client what it is that we assumed in getting to these numbers or into these sort of suggestions or proposals. Um, and there it's important to really sort of highlight the, the, the important assumptions, the methods, the scenarios, uh, sort of show a few scenarios and sensitivities and even maybe going into stochastic analyses. Um, I think those are all important, but they all need to be do, done be very respons responsibly. You often see a, a sort of an actuarial evaluation report where there's sort of like standard assumptions or standard methods, standard disclaimers, um, a few scenarios. You always do like a little bit of inflation scenario and, a, and another inflation uh, sort of... An, these things need to be well thought through. One needs to think about what are the real risks. There's an uncertain future out there. You know, sure, we sort of worried about inflation, you know, but how much can that really do? Are there not maybe perhaps other areas that are more uncertain that management needs to be sort of be made aware of? Um, stochastic analysis, in my mind, I think I've sort of explained uh, I've seldom seen it being explained within an environment or within a context of a non-actuarial audience um, in a way that really sort of added value. I think it's sometimes something that we as actuaries do because we like doing those and I sort of, we like sort of talking to each other about that and it's sort of very interesting and it's nice to watch while we run through 20,000 or 200,000 sort of iterations and put it on a quicker computer and see how quickly it goes and sort of look at where the, the bars are going and where it's heading and how it converges, it's awesome. But in the end, I think it sort of very seldom adds value. And, and one has to, you have got a tremendous responsibility to not sort of just uh, clutter what's already an uncertain future environment with some more information that management needs to be able to, to get their heads around. Um, and one of the best quotes that, that I think I've ever heard sort of has got that whole sort of uncertainty and what's really within uncertainty. Um, and, and my colleagues will know this so well because I quoted whenever I get the chance. Um, which says that if there's a 50-50 chance of something going wrong, then 10 to 1 it will. And I think that's sort of how ordinary people deal with probability. And it's very difficult to really sort of try and, in a, in, in, in a matter of an hour within a board meeting, try and um, educate and, 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 and explain exactly what a stochastic sort of um, scenario wants to achieve. And then the last, last thing that one needs to do is you just need to be an actuary. If one looks at um, sort of all these, the Institute of Faculty, the Society, all of them have got sort of their mission statements or what it is that it actually does, and all of them sort of end or <coughs> somewhere in their description in an ever-changing world, in an ever-changing world. That's what we tell the people out there. They tell them, we tell them we're actuaries, you know, and we can cope within an ever-changing world. So, um, so in a way, that's what drew us to the, to the, to the profession. So a lot of gut and a lot of common sense should also be sort of um, entering in the fray. We are actuaries and that's what we do. We cope in an ever-changing environment. I think in terms of where we don't have any regulatory framework, so these were sort of all examples where we do have some form of regulatory framework, where there's absolutely nothing. Um, we talk about the road accident fund. There's not, it's not true that there's absolutely nothing. Um, it does say within the road accident fund, um, the Financial Supervision of the Road Accident Fund Act. It says that the Road Accident Fund will be subject to the Short-Term Insurance Act, um, except if the FSB um, sort of says that they don't have to, and the FSB has sort of said that they don't have to um, within a, 
Um, but some of, the, some of the regulations still apply in terms of their board composition and in terms of um, short ST returns that need to be compiled. But obviously, the, the best, the sort of the, 75, the confidence intervals in terms of reserving or capital requirements um, would not apply to the road accident fund. Um, within the road accident benefit scheme, absolutely no reference anywhere to an actuary except with, where they talk about the board composition and they say that 10 people need to be qualified and it would be okay if, if that qualification implied that the guy, if, if, if that guy was an actuary, but that's basically all it says. It doesn't say anything up to the extent that an actuary will be required to determine the liabilities, although I think it is sort of implied that, that, that it would probably be an actuary. <coughs> Compensation fund does mention the fact that an actuary needs to determine the valuation of, of the liabilities every now and then. I think it's every three years, yes, um, appointed by the minister. So there's some form of regulatory framework in terms of the fact that an actuary is required, but there's absolutely no regulatory framework or guidance in terms of how that should be done. And we'll be looking at a few examples quickly. Um, if you think about the compensation fund, coin pension evaluation methodology. So if somebody fell off a ladder. Um, got hurt and now sort of can't go back to work and is granted a pension um, by the compensation fund. Um, how does one value that liability? There are quite a few ways. I mean, the, 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 the compensation fund pays CPI increases. That's the stated intent. So one could value this as an inflation-linked annuity and sort of set up a, a totally matched sort of portfolio. You could also uh, value it as a with-profit fund, with-profit um, with profit annuity fund. Um, because there is an element of equity in that portfolio as well, so we could say sort of we manage this and we've got a certain BSR that we sort of want to manage and we'll look every year in terms of what we can afford in terms of pension increases. You could also be managing at, as a pension fund. Um, and it's very interesting that there are two sort of mutuals that have been set up and they operate um, on a license of the compensation fund. So the compensation fund carves out certain responsibilities to these two mutuals, RAND Mutual and, and FEMA. Rand Mutual writes this pension liability on its um, life license. It had to set up a separate life license to be able to write that. So obviously they would value this as either a wish profit annuity or an inflation linked annuity. FEMA, for some reason, and for some, I don't know how that works, but they actually write it on their short-term license. They probably got some form of dispensation from the FSB to be able to do that. Sufficiency targets, we don't know really what level to be projecting this as. Do we want best estimates? Do we want margins in our, uh, our reserves? Allowance for expenses? Some of these, uh, the road accident fund does not allow for maintenance expenses in, in, in setting up its provision. The, the, the compensation fund does. One of our um, motor vehicle maintenance plans um, does include an allowance for claims handling expenses. The other one does not. They, they're audited by two different um, audit firms, or one of the, you know, they're part of the big, big, big four groups. And, um, for some reason, the one argues that no expenses should be allowed for, the other one argues that some expenses should be allowed for. The OIF, we've done some peer review work on their evaluation. They also allow for, for expenses. Um, <clears throat> how to adapt in this world? Um, I'm going to skip over this, and I'm going to skip over this one as well. I think it's a, we might get back to it. Um, but there's, there's a lot of general guidance out there, and Tommy's been mentioning this. Um, the, 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 the Code of Professional Conduct actually sort of has a section specifically dedicated to areas where there's an absence of guidance. And it says, it's quite, it, says it quite well. You can read that. You can go read it in the, in the, in the code itself. Also, it, it does sort of hint or does actually say explicitly that there's an experience requirement if you want to do this kind of work. You cannot just go in there and say, I'm actually, um, I'll start doing this work. Um, you need to have had to work in that environment for a while with actuaries that also worked in that environment. Um, 
There's also related practice areas. For instance, we were sort of alluding to that earlier. Um, the compensation fund one could perhaps see um, at least the sort of the, the lump sum payments as a typical short-term type insurer. So you could be using the short-term insurance guidance when you calculate those liabilities. And often, actually, would in their reports state that they have followed that um, that guidance as far as as far as it made sense. And then they will list a sort of a list of exclusions where they didn't really sort of follow or adhere to that guidance. Um, there's also international guidance. Um, and specifically, there's one which, which I found very interesting and, and, and um, which was sort of one, it's a US one, which um, talks to how and actually should be reporting on information. And it's, and it's, and it's a general, generic um, kind of um, guidance note. It doesn't go into any specific practice area, um, but it does sort of go into a lot of detail in terms of how one should be um, um, documenting what it is that you did and what the objective should be in terms of, um, of, of, of reporting on the work that one did. And the final one, which I think is also very, very, very um, uh, applicable to, and, and probably one where I think the actual Society of South Africa should be considering looking at, if they're not looking at it already. But that is sort of assisting, sort of a guidance note, it's again in the US, assisting actuaries that do work on behalf of auditors. Where auditors ask you to really to go and look at a certain provision on a balance sheet, it might not be within the insurance domain. Um, it might be just a provision for fees that are earned irregularly um, on, let's say, um, um, the, the bureau, of, bureau for standards. Sort of, they they might get their levies in a certain sort of pattern, and some of it's really sort of prepaid, some of it's behind, and you need to come up with a number, and you need to go and help the auditors to determine what that should be. Um, there's absolutely no actuarial guidance in terms of that, but um, this, when I read through this, it actually, and, and to my shame, I must admit, I only read through this um, over the weekend when I started looking around for, for what, um, what is available, and we've been doing a lot of this sort of work related to, to, to this kind of, what this had in mind, this, this standard had in mind, and I wish I had read that sort of three or four or five years ago. I think it sort of gives you tremendous insight into um, into, into what one should be doing and how one should be presenting one's results. That, in a nutshell, I think is what, um, is what I had to say. Sort of, I went five minutes over, over the time. I think I might want to go back to this one slide just as a, as, a, as a sort of, just to end it all. I think sometimes we as actuaries, we sort of feel that we're qualified for doing certain stuff because we're clever and when, it, when nobody else knows, we'll make a plan. You know, we'll sort of figure it out and we'll sort of, um, whatever we've got available, we'll do some stochastic analysis or whatever. But we're really qualified to, to, to answer any question. And I think it's extremely dangerous to get into that spot. Um, it's, uh, I think we, we had a few questions at the Joburg session, which I think was very, very good to, to talk through. I think it's sometimes much better to admit within a context where somebody wants your actuarial advice, just to admit that you don't know. Um, and to say that we don't know, um, maybe one should try and find answers elsewhere, or maybe one should um, change your benefit design. If you want to know what this is going to cost, if it's so vast that possible answers, maybe we should go back to your, to your benefit design, to your product design, and maybe sort of make it a little bit narrower or whatever. But um, this is a sort of an example where um, Miss South Carolina was obviously qualified for the job she had to do. Um, you can see that she was qualified, but um, she probably had a little bit much to connect it to me? Is Felix didn't to me? I personally believe that US Americans are unable to do so because uh, some 
people out there in our nation don't have maps, and uh, I believe that our ed education, like such as South Africa and, and uh, Iraq, everywhere like such as is, I believe that they should, our education over here in the U.S. should help the U.S. or should help South Africa. It should help our Asian countries so we will be able to build up our future. Thank you very much, South Carolina. Yeah. So I think it sort of it illustrated the fact that she had a few things that she could say, that she knew the talk. She was obviously she's very pretty and she obviously knew about world peace and she knew about how education is extremely important and that we should help other countries. But in the end, it really didn't, didn't, didn't answer the question. Um, and I think we as actually should, should be aware of the fact, uh, be, be aware of that we are sort of sometimes, I think, crossing the line uh, more than what we should be. I'm sorry I went over the time I Is there any questions, perhaps? Hi, Francia. Thank you. Um, any indication of when raps will yes, probably you. come into? <laughs> because no, in 2008 they said 2014, and obviously yeah. it's... Uh, yeah, I think so. They received a lot of comments on the bill, um, more than what they would have liked to receive. The, the tremendous pushback from in the legal fraternity for reasons that one, depending on how and the degree of cynicism, you can sort of um, try and um, work out why. But it appears as if, as it stands there, it might not stand up in, in the constitutional court, um, so that there's going to be lots of challenges. So it, it is sort of back to the drawing board, so there's lots of... Um, so I don't know when it's... They're still sort of talking about perhaps uh, 2017 or 2018. I don't know if that's going to be um, workable or not. I think it's important um, on that. I think it's in a profession should really, we, the ball came out and there, there was sort of, we had to um, give comment um, and, and actually the profession did that. I think one of the damages committees, um, the, the chairman of the damages committee sort of said, yes, she thinks we should probably be saying something and she did something hastily and she sent it in. But that was basically the only um, feedback that they got. And I think for, 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 for um, for a piece of legislation that I think um, actually, actually is going to add a lot of value, but nobody really sort of seems to care. Um, I think um, in the next round of, of, of um, comments, if, if, if we have an opportunity, it would be great if, if more actuaries could really sort of give, give, give um, input. Because certain of those benefits, sort of calculations and the pragmatism in the, in the, in the formulae are, are, are great. In terms of an admin perspective, you know, they're going to be sort of applied fairly simply, but, but, but they really are so inequitable, and with a little bit of tweaking, one could get much better for me, and they just somehow um, didn't think of possible issues to help them. Yes. I'm just a question on the, the graph you showed about the spike in Rolex and front claims in 2009. I mean, it's well known that disability claims experience there is some correlation with uh, economic circumstances. Yeah. Is it possible that part of that spike could have been linked to sort of the market conditions at the so time? Think people getting depressed and getting in a car and then maybe, maybe uh, getting into an accident. Maybe even fraudulent claims, etc. Fraudulent, fraudulent claims, yeah. So I think, I mean, we, we tested a lot of things. I mean, that was one. And not necessarily whether it became <coughs> as a result of the economic downturn, but were there more accidents? Um, over that period, really. 
And, and the problem is that the, 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 tra the Road Traffic Management Corporation, RTMC, they were supposed to, to have a register of all, all accidents, but there was a new system introduced, and in the whole transfer of data from the old to the new system, it got lost. So <laughs> they only had data from a certain point onwards. There's a lot of death data, so you, so, so you do get the number of deaths as a result of accidents, and that would give you some form of indication, you know? And, and that certainly didn't show nearly to the extent that we had there. There might have been a little bit of a blip, but you know, it's almost like you have to imagine, you almost want, you do want to have it there to say that there was a bump. It's fairly stable. So there, there wasn't sort of any evidence as far as that's concerned. There's sort of a common, I mean, there's lots of, lots of reasons why people propose that could have happened, but the most probable one is one where attorneys were either ignorant, they didn't know that the new act that was going to come in is going to apply per accident which I find very difficult because they, 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 they think they should know that. You know, they started rushing the claims to come in quicker. Um, but that doesn't explain the whole graph because the more kept coming in, you know, so we had a bit of a I think some of it must have been fortunate. Maybe they went out hunting more actively, you know, employing ambulances to, to, to do some scouting for them in terms of, of, of getting accident. People that were in accidents because they know, knew that there was going to be a finite date after which claims were going to be much you know, it could be fewer, so they might maybe sort of chase them, sort of the last bit of juice that was in the, in the accident fund. That's sort of what... What about the fact that it was suddenly a lot lower afterwards? Oh, so that's the New Amendment Act. So the New Amendment Act says that you cannot claim for whiplash or for sort of frivolous types of claims. So that's why the, the, the number came down. So that's, that's explained. That we understand. You know, all the, the, the small little sort of, I my finger was broken kind of thing. It has to be a general damages claim of more than 150,000 more or less to have been to qualified. So that, that, that we understand. In that, in that blip, there was a whole lot of no claims as well that eventually were repudiated. It sort of gives some backing evidence to this that there's a little bit of a sort of a, an opportunistic lodgement of claims. Um, but definitely not to the extent that we saw that we saw there. Maybe it was just operational inefficiencies that couldn't really sort of just get, get the zero claims sort of out of the system. Um, but to this day people don't really don't really know what, what happened then, how that <clears throat> if I remember the slope of the graph correctly, there was a, a, a downward yes. trend. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so the downward trend was really as a result of attorneys uh, not really knowing what, what, what um, the term was ge um, general damages, well, this is sort of um, serious general damage. So attorneys weren't really sure what was going to go through as serious general damages. And I think they were sort of almost like hoping that the road accident fund wouldn't know how to determine it and just pay it. Um, so, they, so, so over time they've wised up, you know, so you can see a lot of those claims would have been null claims. So the percentage of double claims being submitted initially, uh, about 30-40% of them were null claims. We now sort of at the point where about 10% of it's null claims. So, so, so there's sort of been a, uh, the, the road accident plan the attorneys sort of understand each other now better in terms of what the serious accident is. Um, just, just a comment on something you said, Tommy. Um, Without getting into detail at all uh, regarding the Sweatman matter, um, what we've heard and what we've seen over the last few months, there were numerous judgments and we've actually started to make a list of them where the only outstanding issue was between the way the funds actually calculated the loss or the plaintiff's actuary and without exception the judge always um, determined it on the Sweatman matter, more than 10 cases that I have recorded so far. Um, what I've also, 
I've been told, let me put it like that, I've been told that there will be a written judgment by the 1st of December from a senior judge saying that Sweatman applies throughout until the appeal finds otherwise. Mm. Just to settle this, maybe this side, maybe that side. Um, it's new information to me, but um, once something like that is available, we will circulate it. I mean, we all know each other within the same space. Yeah, that would help a lot in, in just clarifying, because at the moment there is a grey area which allows, and, and, I, and I think, in a sense, that's the right. What, well, that's what the legal situation as it is currently. That's what stands. Um, that that is your legal basis. Um, and I think you. As I said, there is that you can understand why the, if if there is an appeal on the way, you can sort of understand it. But it would the, the clarity there is one of the things that you know just narrows down immediately, so that everybody understands and can't be agreed to get to give a different answer. And a further indication from the same judge is that he, he doesn't like the situation where the RAF tells their panel attorneys to use a specific calculation method. Because um, true, there's definitely a legal part and an actuarial part to whether you should use Sweatman or something else. But from the judge's side, or from what we've heard from the specific judge's side, is he won't take kindly to an actuary to say, I've been instructed by my client to use this actuarial method. Um, I'm not doing work for the RAF, but I think for the people on the panel, it's something to consider um, how to approach that. Um, no, that would be it would be very valuable. Um, and I, I think you know initially when we, did, we when we started that instruction, I put it in big bold letters, you know, which effectively makes your 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 report worth less. Um, now. If, if this was sort of an area governed or dealt where you've got attorneys dealing with these matters who are not um, experts or not good, you know, then I think they would have, I wouldn't have done that. But in, you know, I've got my doubts about the road accident fund attorneys often, well, we maybe see the worst ones where they deal with matters very late and it's not a, a proper response, they haven't got the experts ready. But almost without fail, that the attorneys acting for the claimant is, is, is very good um, professional, they know their work, you know. So if they get a report of mine that says I've been instructed, you know, it's like a red flag, you know, they, they wouldn't, I don't, I don't see, think the clients would be, um, would get a wrong settlement due to the wrong interpretation of the report. I think that the people, the, the fact that there are two sides um, fighting this matter, I think often gets to the right answer. And, and I think in practice, when they, they often got to the say the Sweden method, which is the current legal base anyway, so from what I've seen. Yeah, I think uh, we in any case constrain as actuaries to do what we want to in terms of what we think is right in terms of doing these damages cuts because there had been certain court settlements and court sort of um, what do you call them? Um, case that you have to follow, even though you know that this is not an actual sound method. So in case already, really constrained to, to a degree. So um, I think that an accident fund, where they do give some instruction, it shouldn't be to say that you should throw your actual principles overboard and do things our way. I think it's more sort of, and they've tried to do that, to, to, to more sort of say that I mean, in this world where there is uncertainty and where we haven't at this stage yet determined exactly what the right way is, and certain <laughs> cases are still being appealed, we suggest you do it this way. We wouldn't force you to go into a court and stand up and say, this is what I believe. I mean, you can still at that point say what you think believe. You can say, 
like Tommy said, put it in sort of bold letters in your reports. I've been instructed to do it this way. And the relaxation fund wouldn't give an instruction if they don't believe that that's going to happen the case. I mean, they would then argue, yes, but I mean, this is still being under review and it's still being, being appealed. Um, so it is something that we tried from the Road Accident Fund to be very sensitive to. We don't want actuaries to go into a, 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 in, in, in a witness stand and say, no, sorry, I, mean, I would never have done it this way, but they told me I should, you know, otherwise they don't pay me. Um, so it's something we are aware of. Sometimes it gets interpreted that way, but I think it's, it's, it's sometimes a bit of a mischievous interpretation. It's not really, it wasn't with that in mind. It's really sort of saying, this is the Road Accident Fund stance. And like Tommy's saying, he's going to be a plaintiff actually, and he's going to be a rat actually. Um, I'd just like to say thank you very much to both Francho and Tommy for taking the time out and doing this very interesting presentation. I'm sure we've all got something to think about while we drive home now. And yes, thank you to all of you for attending the first sessional. We hope to see you at the next one.